Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Uh, hey, Auditorium 2, March looks super good on you guys. Um, if you are here and you are visiting with us, we're especially happy to have you. If you have any questions whatsoever about life here at Fellowship Greenville, please stop by our first-time guest center, which is over here in the comments beside Auditorium 1. We have a team there that cannot wait to serve you. They woke up this morning going, this is the only thing I want to do today, so go bother them over there first-time guest center, and if you are a member or a regular, please go say hey to our friends out at Next Steps, and they also can't wait to answer every single question you have about getting involved in community groups or equipping classes or mission and service opportunities or Bible studies, et cetera, et cetera, and et cetera, so go stop by the Next Steps table also out in the commons over here near Auditorium One. <clears throat> well, um, as many of you know, we are a few weeks into a series that we are calling uncompromising faith, which is all about the days of the judges in the Old Testament. We're doing eight weeks in the actual book of Judges leading up to Easter, and then we're going to do four weeks in the book of Ruth after Easter because her story begins with the phrase in the days of the Judges and is <clears throat> meant to be read with all the Judges stories in view. So that's the game plan. And we're calling our series Uncompromising Faith because like Israel, that's exactly what we are called to. Sadly, though, at the time, Israel was often found compromising and conforming to cultural norms and narratives rather than to God's standards and what he clearly said to them. <clears throat> For them, they, they, uh, they canonized the way that they did religion and politics and military strategy and even family life sometimes. So they began to act like their savage, crazy Canaanite neighbors rather than the set-apart people of the true and living God. And from our perspective, much can be learned from their distractedness. Also, Charlie has talked at great length about how violent Judges is. Like, this is not K-5 Sunday school curriculum. In fact, uh, I, I got a hot 20 for anybody who finds a judges theme VBS. I mean, I know the Baptists can like be fun with it, but that, that's, that's a difficult find in my book because it is intense. And sometimes our modern sensibilities don't know what to do with all of the bloodshed. In fact, in the modern West, we have so sanitized all of existence that violence like we see in the book of Judges is, is almost unbearable. But be sure of this. Whenever you see violence and death like that in the Bible, you're going to find a deep and heavy commentary on human sinfulness, brokenness, and need. And so on, on one level, these stories are intended to bother us and disturb us. They're to make us look into our hearts and out into the world and be awakened to what we're actually called to, an unwavering, uncompromising faith in a faithful God. And today, we get to keep thinking about all of this stuff in Judges chapter four. If you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bible, Judges chapter four, <clears throat> we will be there in a few minutes. I promise Judges chapter four. Now, as you're flipping your way there, <clears throat> I know that we're gonna keep, in this series, we're gonna keep going back to the uncompromising part of uncompromising faith, but I don't wanna sleep on the faith part. Like, I don't wanna presume on that part of the equation uh, so we're gonna talk about that for a little bit this morning. I'm also not sure if you guys ever did this, but I, in a former life, I used to be a Baptist youth pastor, and so uh, this, my job depended on it. But you guys remember the trust fall? Anybody remember the trust fall? Um, 
Now, some people are like, oh yeah, where you stand on the ground and you fall back into somebody's arms. No, that's like a homeschool hug. That's just weird. That's not even a thing, dude. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about standing on up like a, like a five foot tall platform and then you close your eyes and you cross your chest and you fall backwards into the people's arms below you and behind you. And, and this is the kind of thing that we probably uh, should have signed waivers for, but we didn't all those many moons ago. <clears throat> something, something like this, like this requires actual trust. I don't know if you can see it, but that dude is praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again right there. <laughs> That's what's going on. And the reason that trust fall came to mind is because relational trust really is a crucial dynamic of the idea of faith in the Bible. Like, this is a terrifying thing. If you don't know the people that are below you, right? If you don't have a connection with them, if you don't have a relationship with them, if you don't have faith in them, trust fall is actually gonna be a pretty scary deal. But if you do know them, then falling into their strong and loving embrace won't be uh, as terrifying. This guy's such a blur right here. Yeah, he's also, I think he's Hail, Hail Mary full of grace. I, I think he's, he's doing his thing right there. Um, but I do think there, there is a way in which this can be a picture of the interpersonal nature of faith as we see it in scripture. But faith in the Bible is also talked about in terms of allegiance. In fact, in the world of the New Testament, Caesar referred to himself as Lord and Savior. And he asked for people to pistuo, and the way we translate that Greek word pistuo is to have faith. But for Caesar, it was a political word about swearing allegiance. So when we come to Jesus as the true Lord and Savior, the word faith can insinuate allegiance or even faithfulness, if you will. Then beyond trust falls and allegiance, faith is also the same idea, sometimes the same word as believe in the Bible. And in modern ears, believe is usually associated with the world of the mind, like it will include the intellect, but it also can't be reduced to the intellect. We're supposed to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there will be ideas and truths and propositions in the mix when we talk about what faith is. And all of these dynamics of faith, they're tough enough on their own, but we live in a day and time and space and context in which there are cynics and skeptics who think that our faith is a joke or, or some crutch, that they accuse us of blind faith. They're like, dude, you got no proof, you got no evidence for that. But even the most seemingly logical atheists in the world will have huge gaps in their thinking. Like, if they're a naturalist, they don't have a cogent response for how everything came from nothing, and they have to live with that, dare I say, by faith. And for me, that's an intellectual trust fall that I am not willing to take or make. But scripture teaches us that our faith is not mainly intellectual agreement about detached facts. Our faith is not primarily deduced rationally. It's not primarily an impersonal feeling. Faith is the movement of the soul towards God to bring us into relationship with God and sustain us in relationship with God. It could even be said that the only thing that God has ever really asked of his people is one thing, and that is faith, to the point that Paul in Romans even says everything that is not from faith is sin. However, one of my favorite ways to talk about faith, and this is the one I wanna camp on today, is that of dependence. And dependence might be the least fun, least popular way to talk about faith in all of the Bible. Why? Because dependence makes us really quickly talk about our own personal neediness, shame, and lack. 
Dependence includes acknowledging that you can't do a thing on your own because you know that you don't have enough strength, you don't have enough information, and last time you tried the thing, you messed it up, and so you know you can't fly solo. Which again, this is delicate enough on its own, but most of us are Americans, and so guess what rules our subconscious? Independence, the declaration of independence made us a country. And I am so grateful for the freedoms we have in this country. But sometimes that means that for God to call us to an uncompromising dependence on him, sometimes it can feel like swimming upstream and you might get scoffed at like dependence is really just a weakness and it's never a virtue. And I think scripture would say the opposite. What I'm saying when I talk about dependence is that real faith is frustrating, not in an angering way, but in a way that sort of paints us into an uncomfortable corner. That's the title of the sermon today, A Frustrating Dependence, because this is the truth about how faith often feels. Like, like just think about it. <clears throat> Your boss at work is doing something that you consider on the verge of unethical, but not all the way there, and they haven't lied to you, but they also haven't followed through like they said they were going to. And you know that if you say something, even the little, a little question, you're gonna be job hunting in 48 hours. You know that. Like you've talked to the few safe people at work. And not only do you not know what to do, you don't even know the next thing to do to get to what you're supposed to do. So guess what that requires? A frustrating dependence. Or maybe you think your parents have, parents have made promises to you that they are not fulfilling Maybe technically they are, but it feels like they are intentionally not meeting your expectations just because life has been so hectic and so crazy and so busy. But for you, man, it, it's also their attitude. Like you get the sense that they don't care about the promises they made to you. Guess what that requires? A frustrating dependence on Jesus. What about when your spouse doesn't care like they used to and you've talked to your friends and you've talked to their friends and you've talked to both your families and you've talked to counselors or when you've heard different stories from different people about different things and you can't get everybody in the same room to talk about it and it's getting worse day by day or when money is already tight but you see bills coming in the future that you know you can't deal with and your calendar and your body and your brain cannot handle the pace of life that you're currently living at. Or, hey, let's just be honest. Maybe it's most frustrating when it's directly about God himself. Like you've prayed and you have prayed. You have shed tears in your Bible. You have been vulnerable and honest and open with your community group and your close circle of friends. You're meeting regularly with one of our pastors here and even a therapist. And you oscillate between sadness, total numbness, and just rage. And you go back and forth between the three. And the real problem is, you don't even know what faith means anymore. Like, like when you're right there, what do you do? What's the move? How do you think about and move towards God when you're in a space like that? How do you rightly trust him when you're there? This walks us up to our question today because we're all gonna feel this in some way at some point if we're trying to follow Jesus. And this is our question. Why is faith in God so frustrating and what should we do about it? Like, I'm trying to be honest. I'm a pastor. I'm trying to be honest. This is real. 
I mean, are you trying to follow Jesus? Because if you are, then you're going to have to like bump up against this question. Why, why is faith so annoying? Why is it so frustrating sometimes? And what do we need to do about it? Like, why does dependence have to be part of the package deal? Dude, I can almost hang with trust, falls, allegiance, and believing. Like, I can almost manage those kind of things. But why? why? What is a frustrating dependence all about? And what should we do about it? That is our question for today. And today, Judges chapter four will help us answer this question. Um, also, heads up, there's some weird names and places in this story, so it might be hard to follow, but I believe in you. You got this. I know that you're all Hebrew Bible scholars, so we're going to take care of this thing. Uh, also, I'm going to read the whole thing straight through, all of Judges 4, uh, and it's long. And then we're going to confess our gratitude together for God's Word, even the fun parts of Judges. So Judges 4, 1 through 24, let's think well about a frustrating dependence. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. Here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. Yahweh is the special special covenant name of God that's usually capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles right there, verse two. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashet Hagoim, duh, then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, uh, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And she said, I'll surely go with you. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with them. <clears throat> now, uh, Hever the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Havav, the father-in-law of Moses. And Hever had pitched his tent as far away as the ilk of Za'anim, which is near Kadesh. It's right off exit 31. You guys know. Verse 12. And when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harashet Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, let's go up. For this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harashet Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Verse 17. But... Oh, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hever the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Hever the Kenite. And Jael 
came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. <laughs> if you guys don't know the story, it's about to get real. So he turned aside to her and went to the tent. She covered him with a rug. And he said to her, you got something, water or something? I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him. And he said, hey, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, hey, is anybody here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Haver, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. <laughs> then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> and behold, <laughs> as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, I'll show you the man who you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there was Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple, verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. I told Charlie earlier this week, I was like, man, I just wish I had like a three hour, like small little classroom thing where we could talk about all the details because there's so much fun stuff happening in this story because then the sermon might actually be good. But I promise we'll try to make something out of this here. Um, first off, I just wanna let you know that Judges four and five go together and we're not going to study five. They're about actually the same event. Judges four is the prose, Judges five is the poetry. So four is, about, is a story about the event, and five is a song about the event that we just read about. And the only other time that this like uh, song, or excuse me, story song combo is used in the whole Hebrew Bible is Exodus 14 and 15, when God sets the people free from slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. Exodus 14 is the prose story. Exodus 15 is the poem song thing. And the writer of Judges uh, knows that, and he's drawing on that, and so we'll come back, we'll come back to that a little bit. Also, broadly speaking, remember what Judges is doing. It is giving us a cycle that keeps moving downward, starting at sin at the top, the people sin, then they experience discipline, and then they cry out to Yahweh in distress. Then there's grace at the very bottom, and God moves toward them in their suffering. And then he delivers them. He rescues them or uh, saves them. And finally, there's a kind of top left there, peace or shalom that they experience. But here's what you have to get. When they get to the peace part, here's what happens. The judge deliverer person dies, and then they start the cycle over again at sin. It's almost like the book of Judges says we need a judge deliverer person whose death actually deals with sin for good, right? The cycle is not just for fun. It's almost like Judges is saying that to us. So in our passage today, in 4.1, they sin. They did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then there's discipline. They're sold into the hands of evil King Jabin there. Then there's distress in 4.3. You can see it right there in verse three. They cry out to Yahweh for help. And in his grace, there's still a prophetic presence in Israel in Deborah, Deborah Brush. That's her prophetic presence. And Yahweh's pres promises, uh, he promises that Jabin and Sisera will not win. And then in 4.12 and following, we have deliverance. They experience 
deliverance and salvation. And now top left, the last verse of chapter four and the last line of chapter five are the same. They, the land had rest for 40 years because God subdued the enemy. That's, <coughs> that's the cycle right there that uh, Judges is continuing. Now, you're like, oh, that's just a literary structure. No, 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 it's more than that. But if I'm honest, just the literary structure should be enough to make us think about a frustrating dependence. Like, why can't people just learn from other people's mistakes and get it right? Come on, you idiots. Let's just do what they didn't and we'll be okay. So that's, that's almost enough for me to be like, let's just think about the cycle thing. But Judges wants us to think about this actual story in chapter four. And so that's the context in which we need to ask and answer our question. So Judges 4, <clears throat> brief overview here. Deborah, godly, wise woman. She's a prophetess. The first time we see a prophetess, guess who it is? Miriam, and guess where it is? At the Red Sea, Exodus 15, the little uh, story song combo thing. And Deborah here is reminding God's people of God's truth directly. That's prophecy, specifically to a guy named Barak, who is this army commander guy in Israel. And here's the problem though. Barak is a coward, an absolute coward. Now he has this problem, you and I don't have this problem because we're better than this, but he makes his decisions based on fear and peer pressure, all right? He's really, really passive. <clears throat> so Deborah says to him, hey Barak, did not God say, did not God say that he would give King Jabin and Commander Sisera into your hand? And look at what Barak says, look at verse eight. Verse eight, Barak says to her, well, if you go with me, I'll go. Hey, look at the question. Did not God say this? The question is a yes or no question. Barak, did not God say? And Barak goes, you want to come with me? Like he's a wuss. This is terrible. He doesn't even answer the question. He's shaking his knees. He's a coward here. And if you're a thoughtful Bible reader, the writer of Judges is doing something really, really fun right here. He's retelling the Genesis story, but with a twist. Like the garden, he's telling you about a woman who goes to a tree to do God's word, to do judgment about God's word, and there beside her stands a passive man. The chapter even ends with a head crushed at the hands of a woman. That's what Genesis 3 promises, that one day God will send somebody from a woman to crush the head of the great enemy. Now at the time, <clears throat> Men served as judges in Israel. So for Mama Deborah here to be the functional judge person is to say that Israel is like a lazy, cowardice, passive Adam, only doing what is right in his own eyes. And if you're like, hey, Jim, that's like a modernist kind of spin interpretation on it. Uh, no, because even Deborah basically insinuates it in verse nine. Look at verse nine. Deborah says that because of Barak's cowardice, <clears throat> because he's a passive Adam kind of person, the honor that could be his will go to a woman. And sure enough, they go to war, and they're against Sisera and the chariots, just like Pharaoh and his chariots in Exodus 14 and 15. And chapter five, the, the, the song thing, tells us that there was an earthquake, and the river Kishon swept Sisera's army away, just like Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. But then, Commander Sisera gets away, and then Barak chases him, and this woman, J.L., sees him. <clears throat> now, let me, real quick on J.L. J.L. used to be tight, and her family used to be chummy with the Israelites, but they gave that up, and now her family is tight and cool and, and chummy with, the, uh, with Jabin, <clears throat> king of Canaan. And I don't know, man, there's so many questions around a little J.L. here, but when he falls asleep, when Sisera, Commander Sisera guy falls asleep in J.L.'s tent, 
I have no idea how much CrossFit JL is doing, but my girl takes a tent peg and drives it through this dude's skull and into the ground, okay? You're like, Jim, is he still, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm, t- I'm telling you what it says. So there might be some hyperbole, but this is unreal. <clears throat> then she goes out, she sees Barack and she goes, hey, come here, look at this. Look at the guy you're chasing. She invites Barack into her tent and she goes, hey, look, look, he's dead. Rem- watch this, reminding Barack, hey man, not only did you fail, but Deborah's prophecy came true, right? That's what, that's what Barack is feeling. A woman will take the honor that could have been his if he wasn't a coward. Now, that's, and the story ends, right? So there's a lot of little details going on here uh, that I'm skipping. If you want to explore the details and be a Bible nerd, I highly suggest Daniel Block's commentary on Judges and Ruth. I believe it's on the back bottom of the note sheets there. If you want to look at that, Daniel Block's commentary is excellent. But let me show you something. <coughs> I want to show you how this text is intended to, not just that we have modern sensibilities and it bothers us, this text is intended to bother us. Fully believe that, this passage is supposed to annoy us. Let me show you, because there's all these competing pictures and messages in the passage. So first, on a broad level, the violence is still hard to to comprehend. And I don't think that's because we're modern Westerners. I think this violence is a commentary on the the level of the brokenness of of humanity. even if it's against like a terrorist kind of people like Jabin and Sisera. But beyond the violence, you have, watch, you have a coward who should be a hero, right? Barack, he's an army commander. He's a coward who should be the hero. And then you have this person who's set up to be the hero, Deborah. We're like, man, we like Deborah. She's a boss. She's awesome. She's incredible. We love her. But did you notice she disappears halfway through the story? Mama Deborah just evaporates. We don't know what happened. Did you, you see that? That's, that's telling us something. That's confusing. That's frustrating. Furthermore, the defeat of the enemy is kind of from another enemy. Like why? What does that even mean? <clears throat> also, we're supposed to feel the following. Just feel how annoying this is. <clears throat> hey, Barack, didn't God tell you that he would give them into your hand? I'm a little scared, Deborah. Barack, because you're not confident in God, he's gonna give your enemy into a woman's hands. And at this point in the story, we expect the woman to be Deborah. Like, we we like Deborah right now. We expect that to be the case. But then look at verse 14. Hey, Barack, get up. This is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go before you? Which is so empowering. And I don't know how he's not ready for anything after that. Does not the Lord go before you? Right? Also, uh, Debbie, I'm confused, sweetie, sister. I need, I need some help here. In verse nine, you said that the enemy would be given into a woman's hands. And then you said the enemy would be given, in, in verse 14, into your hands, Barack. So, Deborah, which is it? Because it can't be both. Um, and if it is both, how do you know? And they just feel like they're competing. So I'm a little confused. Like, is your boss unethical or are they just doing something that you don't like? Like, are your parents withholding or are you just being entitled? Like, is that, a, is that a sin issue that you need to repent of or is that some fragility deep in your soul because of abuse in your past? Is that their lack of follow through or are you just being too demanding? Like, I, I don't know. And if it's both, what's the percentage? Like, how does that work and how will we ever know? Uh, like, Deborah, I need you to help me out, sister. 
Like render judgment for me under your tree. Tell me what's up. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, both in your life and in this passage. What I'm trying to get you to see is the first part of a frustrating dependence. To frustrate does not mean to enrage, it means to prevent. And this starts to answer our question. And this is a hard one to believe, but here we go. Sometimes God's grace to us is to prevent us from relying on ourselves or others to make sense out of life. You want a tough pill to swallow? Here it is. Sometimes God's grace to you is to bother you, annoy you, frustrate you, paint you into a corner, and prevent you from doing it on your own. And guess what that is? Grace, I fully believe that. Sometimes God's grace to us is to prevent us from relying on ourselves or others to make sense of life. Rest assured that God wants to frustrate every plan in your life that is about you. Tough pill to swallow. He wants to prevent us from doing it all on our own. Just think about Deborah. She's this awesome, incredible, wonderful, godly woman. And what does she have to work with? A coward of a dude, right? Who is scared to do what God told him to do. And think about Barak. He eventually comes around and he actually starts to muster up a little strength to step out and obey God. And what happens to him? Some other enemy girl finishes his job. Like, I believe that God wants you to get to a place where you run out of options for making life work on your own. I believe that. And you might not think it at the time, but listen, that's a gift. It's his, if you will, preventing grace, and it calls for a frustrating dependence upon him. So why is faith so frustrating? Because we try to make it so that we have faith in ourselves to so that we trust in ourselves. That's why faith is so frustrating. Hey, hey, this ain't Ephesians, right? This is Judges, this is messy. And when you try to make life work on your own, when you try to have your cake and eat it too on your own terms, guess what eventually happens? You end up taking the bait of the most comfortable cultural narrative near you. Like Israel, you compromise. And we do this all the time. We think that relying on God is too exhausting or requires too much focus or too much energy or too much time. So we try to calm the storms in our lives with money or food or booze or porn or Netflix. And sometimes we even baptize the cultural narratives of certain friend groups or political parties or lifestyles instead of doing the hard work of owning up to your desperate need before God. We do that. We act like we don't come before him in dire fragility and need. I do it, we do it. One of my favorite examples of this is 2 Corinthians 12. Go read it later, don't flip, I just want you to hear it. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that he has a thorn in the flesh, some physical infirmity. And three times it says that he begged God to take it away. Not like this, take it away God please. Please take it away. God, could you take it away? Not like that. The language is that for three intense seasons of life, he begged God to remove it from him. And guess what God was up to? You ready for this? He was preventing Paul from relying on himself. He's like, Paul, I'm not going to give you the option of thinking you can do life apart from me. It required from Paul a frustrating dependence. And this is what I hate slash love about 2 Corinthians 12. 
Paul never says whether God took it away. Never. Rather, Jesus comes to Paul and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So when you're weak, you're strong. And someone, you need to hear that today and let it sink deeply in. Hear Jesus say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, this is only, this is only half the equation. This is just the, <clears throat> the frustrating and preventing part of it. This is only being assured that the people behind you in the trust fall are not strangers, right? So what's the positive part of this dependence? So why is faith so often frustrating? Because we make it about us. And what should we do about it? Well, along with the intentionally competing pictures in Judges 4, there's also one consistent melody. I've got all these highlighted in my Bible, and I suggest maybe you do the same, or if you wanna listen to this later and do it, I just want you, I wanna show them to you. Look at verse six. Verse six. Has not God commanded you? Now look down at verse seven. God said, I will give them into your hand. Verse 14, go down to verse 14. Yahweh has done it. Does he not go before you? Now in verse 15, and Yahweh, the Lord, routed Sisera and all his chariots. And finally, the last lines there, verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So, hey, absolutely. The writer of Judges wants us to feel the intensity of our sinfulness and brokenness and need. And he wants to, us to feel the, the need and brokenness of the whole world but more than that, bigger than that, he wants to give us a picture of a God who brings unsuspecting victory to undeserving people. The writer of Judges wants us to know that, that God does it. He brings unsuspecting victory to undeserving people. He's trying to help us see that. And that's why, you ready? That's why these two chapters, four and five Judges, mirror Exodus 14 and 15. Because when the people left slavery, they had nothing. They were completely dependent and totally helpless, and they had to have God win the day, and he did. And that's what the writer of Judges is trying to get us to see. We're supposed to be at that level of desperation and dependence before God. We have to feel the same thing, and we have to believe that God brings unsuspecting victories for undeserving people like us. In his commentary, Daniel Block writes the following. The entire account is deliberately crafted to highlight the salvation provided by God. He is the chief operator. He's pulling the strings, raising generals, deploying armies, dictating strategy, and effecting victory. And in the end, both narrative and song celebrate the saving work of Yahweh. Now, I think Block is spot on here and you can't, this is the other thing, the subtext, you can't completely pin God down to a divine game plan because then you would trust what he could do for you and he wants you to trust him. That's what he wants. So let's say it like this. Even if we don't experience it like we want to in the present, we can depend on God for future victory because of his track record of faithfulness in the past. Again, because we're all gonna need this when our life is on spin cycle like the book of Judges. Even if we don't experience it like we want to in the present, 
We can depend on God for future victory because of his track record of faithfulness in the past. Now, I think that little thing on screen right there, I think that little thing is behind Deborah's words to Barak in verse 14. Hey, Barak, does not the Lord go before you? Meaning, is he good to his word or not? He'll do it. He will do it. He will bring the victory. But we don't get to tell God what the victory has to look like. We don't. In deep dependence, we get to fall back into his arms, knowing that he is good and wise, even if all the pieces are bewildering and confusing to us. His track record proves that we can trust him for that. So, when your spouse doesn't care like they used to, and you feel like you're at the most confusing crossroads of your entire life, brother or sister, does not the Lord go before you? And when you have no clue how you're gonna do it financially and you know it's not gonna get easier with the bills that are coming your way, believe it. Does not the Lord go before you? If you're caught in a sin or in a lie or in a fear or in a relationship and you know that it's largely the result of you trying to do what is right in your eyes and not God's, if that's where you find yourself, hear it. This is the gospel truth. Does not the Lord go before you? And I don't know where you stand, but you have to believe this. We have to believe this. He will bring victory to his people in his time, in his own time, in his own way. But we can trust him for it. We can believe that he will. And as we wait, this is frustrating, we have to resist quick fixes and easy answers and cultural narratives. We have to resist a tidy faith that is no faith at all. And in doing so, we need to take a deep breath We need to trace his faithfulness in the past, confess our sins, pray for patience, beg for wisdom, and know that relying on him will not be in vain. This is a frustrating dependence. And this is what God invites us to. There's no better example of this than our Lord Jesus himself. Some of you might be thinking, well, God the Father never like prevented him from getting it his own way. That's like a theological migraine. That's just weird. That's not a thing. Well, speaking out of the intensity of the moment, the night he was arrested, on the way to the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And not only did Jesus himself need to know it, does not the Lord go before you, but for our sakes and because of his death and resurrection, he became the Lord that goes before us, paving the way, blazing the trail to eternal life ahead of us. Also, don't forget, Judges pushes us to hope by showing us that we can't have hope on our own. But in Jesus, we have lasting hope. Why do we have lasting hope in Jesus? Because he is the true judge who renders judgment at the tree by taking our deserved judgment into himself. He crushes the head of the enemy for good by the nails that were driven into his hands and into his feet. 
And he's the only one who can deliver us from life spiraling downward and out of control. If Judges screams to us that we need a deliverer who, after they die, we don't turn back into sin, then Jesus is the deliverer king who isn't held down by death. Therefore, the sin cycle is broken because the increase of his government of peace will know no end. And we get to stay in shalom. Think about it like this. Jesus' resurrection is the decisive an ultimate victory that we need. And it proves that all the stuff that weighs us down, that bothers us, that distracts us, that frustrates us, all that stuff does not get to speak the final word. Rather, at the empty tomb of Christ, we get to reread Judges 4.23. Now it goes a little something like this. So on that day, God subdued sin and death before his people and brought them eternal victory. Now, because of this, no matter how great our need, no matter how fragile our past, no matter how layered our struggle, Jesus understands and we can trust him. Because of his great love and victory at the cross and resurrection, we should pledge total allegiance to him. And in him alone is there life and hope and peace even if sometime it, sometimes it's best called of frustrating dependence. Fellowship Greenville, it is good news today that God wants to prevent you from trusting yourself. Especially because even more than that, he wants you to have faith in him and what he has accomplished in his son Jesus to bring eternal life to people who don't deserve it. I hope that's where your heart is fixed today and I hope that your faith is in Jesus alone today. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray with the psalmist. Some trust in chariots and in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus, you are the Lord our God who goes before us. Thank you. But Holy Spirit, sometimes the roar of the chariots might seem to drown out the hope of the gospel. And when that is happening, teach us, Holy Spirit, to hold fast. Teach us to believe. Teach us dependent patience. Holy Spirit, please. Spirit, I ask right now that in myself and in my brothers and sisters, you would give us a very clear picture of the depth of our need for you. You would give us a, a plain, clear, crystal clear snapshot of how desperate we should be for you. Please, Holy Spirit, do that. Not to bum us out, but so that we would, we would be made more like Jesus. Spirit, shape us to be like Christ, please. Jesus, thank you for the cross and the resurrection where you overcame sin and death. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.